remind us of our essential purpose and challenge us to become the best version of ourselves. You know, I guess you could actually rewrite that and um, and replace the word standards with energy. Uh, the people are, the people we surround ourselves with either raise or lower our energy or vibration. They either help us to become the best version of ourselves or encourage us to be lesser versions of ourselves. We become like friends. No man becomes great on his own. No woman becomes great on her own. The people around them help to make them great. We all need people in our lives who raise our vibration, raise our energy, and remind us of our essential purpose and challenge us to become the best version of ourselves. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, So some news for you. Uh, If you are fans of my books, um, you know the publishing industry is taking a hit these days. Uh, Just kind of a little um, uh, snapshot, I guess, if you will. Uh, With so many stores not being open, um, you know, bookstores, they don't have people walking in the doors uh, to purchase books. Uh, So those books are going back to publishers. Uh, that's uh, one version of uh, of the problem. Uh, you would think now with more people home, uh, maybe more people would be buying books. Well, I don't know, maybe. Um, you know, there's Kindle. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people are using Kindle. But anyway, um, uh, where I'm going with this is, um, uh, as I started to say, if you're a fan of my books, uh, Goddess 2.0, that uh, – that anthology, it is out of print now. So unless you get a copy from me, and I only have a few copies left, uh, or you get it from a, um, uh, a wholesaler, I think there's probably still some copies on Amazon, uh, it will not be available uh, for a while. I am thinking of taking the rights back and maybe putting it on Amazon, uh, create space and uh, having it available. Uh, but that's yet to be seen. Um, I have too much up in the air right now, and um, I don't know about that. So just a heads up about that. Uh, if you want it, grab it now wherever you can find it because it might not um, be something you can get in the future. And a lot of great contributors to that book. Uh, I felt like it was one of the three books that were in the Manifesting a New Normal trilogy. And, um, you know, that's kind of one of the three legs of the stool that uh, may no longer uh, stand, if you will, Uh, you know, keeping the stool uh, upright. So anyway, Goddess 2.0, get it now while you can, wherever you can find it. Uh, The other thing is uh, my very first book, Sacred Places of Goddess, uh, 108 Destinations, uh, that might soon be gone as well. Uh, So you want to grab that wherever you can get it, uh, while you can get it, because uh, that publisher is making noises like, um, you know, publishers are just not making money right now, so they're not holding on to inventory because they have to rent space for that inventory. Um, So, yeah, uh, things are shifting and changing and hurting all over. Um, So here's a heads up if you want either of those books uh, and you've been putting it off, uh, don't wait too much longer. Uh, I still do have a few copies myself, um, but uh, I don't know how long those books will be available. And um, one other thing before I start uh, my uh, message from the Goddess Calling book, uh, which is still out there and you can still get it, um, I wanted to share with you uh, something that I posted on my blog, uh, Dancing at the Edges, uh, and I also posted it on my Karen Tate um, Facebook page, uh, but I hadn't shared this with uh, radio show listeners. So um, 
you know, uh, many of you probably know me uh, going back uh, maybe even more than two decades. Uh, when I began my community work, I was doing uh, sacred tours, leading them, uh, writing books, doing rituals, talks, workshops, and, of course, the radio show here. Uh, I always had 12 balls in the air while I worked full-time and ran groups. And uh, what you may or may not have noticed is um, I don't do 90% of those things anymore, and I haven't for a number of years. And what you don't know is it all tracks back to when um, I was assaulted several years ago. And most everything I was, the things that made me me, uh, well, that all came to a grinding halt. Um, Maybe not a grinding halt. It was a gradual halt. And um, I felt... I was really becoming a shadow of my former self. But, you know, at first I thought it was just a second Saturn return because they say that happens then. Um, And I didn't know for years until I went into therapy that everything was falling away because of the assault and the insecurity and vulnerability I felt uh, for years afterwards and and still do, quite frankly, Um, feeling unsafe um, and that vulnerable this uh, feeling vulnerable, you know, really sort of changed uh, the trajectory of uh, my life. So, um, unfortunately, uh, not much has changed in that arena. Uh, when I, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll share with you, you know, uh, you know, because you've been with me a long time, I think of you as my friends. Um, you know, when I see cars with dark windows inching slowly past my house, which is mostly on a deserted street, uh, I really do believe it's the vindictive narcissist I know or his agent surveilling me. Uh, I know how paranoid that sounds, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. Um, I'm not sleeping. Uh, driving is very hard, uh, anxiety-producing. Uh, most times I can't leave the house uh, because the world has kind of become a darker smaller place. Um, You know, I was self-quarantined actually before COVID, and uh, all this started years before the pandemic and the anxiety uh, that Trump has produced and so many of us. So I've tried to distract myself with projects, um, but I don't always have the bandwidth or the cognitive focus to see them through. And my apologies for that if I've let any of you down. Uh, it's it's hard for someone accustomed to keeping those 12 balls in the air to sometimes barely be able to keep up one or two. You know, your self-esteem really takes a gut punch. It feels like one inch forward and two steps back sometimes. So, you know, I haven't shared this uh, before because I know so many of you are struggling too, um, especially now during the pandemic. But I am telling you now because I just didn't, um, want you to mysteri- you know I didn't want to mysteriously kind of drop off the grid after so many years uh, and so I'm trying to take my own advice um, and that is don't be ashamed to tell people you're struggling so dear friends I've been struggling for about five years um, a great metaphor I've I've read for my life that comes from a great book by Cheryl Richardson is I feel like I'm a tree with bare branches. Now, you know, I don't want you to um, worry about me. I'm hanging in. Uh, but I can no longer pretend and say I'm fine and smile because I'm, I'm just not. Uh, when I hear the floorboards creak, I still worry the floor is going to literally collapse beneath my feet. I I hear popcorn popping and imagine it's that stun gun again. Um, And, you know, trying to fake it until I make it hasn't always worked, but it's what uh, well-meaning people say to do because they don't know what else to suggest. So, yes, I have um, PTSD and depression from that event and subsequent Uh, feelings of insecurity and vulnerability that came after that, Uh, even though some people are confused and think only soldiers get post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, somebody actually told me that. Um, I've been ashamed to admit it except to my closest friends, uh, but now you know, and I hope you'll understand. Uh, That's why, except for this radio show, I am uh, kind of going off the grid, doing a hiatus, um, 
I thought my loyal and longtime friends, fans, and colleagues should know and not think I died of coronavirus or something. But I am going to keep the radio show going. That is one thing uh, that gives me some normalcy. So I will continue to be here with you uh, every Wednesday at 11 o'clock, unless I have to schedule it on a different day. Um, And I hope perhaps maybe some of you out there might even glean some inspiration or personal liberation from my sharing this uh, vulnerability and being honest Uh, because, you know, I've come to uh, understand and uh, that we have to give ourselves permission to say it's okay not being perfect or not feeling or being strong all the time. Uh, Sometimes we're really just exhausted and need a rest and need to take care of ourselves. Uh, so, like I said, you will still find me here. If you want to reach me, you can by my email address. That's KarenTate108 at Yahoo.com. But you won't find me on Facebook anymore. Uh, that I am giving up. Um, you know, being a victim of a violent assault, I'm particularly sensitive to injustice and abuse. And I've tried to fight um, many types of injustice on Facebook as a coping tool. Uh, I learned uh, for my trauma, but I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, I, I'm not. Do, so um, I'm removing myself from that toxic environment and getting away from so many of the sick trolls. <clears throat> um, it's not good for me. So, um, yes, I will still be here. Um, and um, there's 13 years of archives. Uh, that you can uh, tap into if you didn't know. Uh, Although, like I said, I'll be here every Wednesday. Uh, You can check out my past newsletters uh, to get links to my two YouTube channels posted long before all this happened. Uh, I'm not pulling down my website, KarenTate.net. You can still go there, buy books, see links. Um, and uh, while I might be forced to be a lot more inactive right now, uh, I believe there's a legacy of work online that um, uh, has been out there for a while, you know, before the assault or any of this uh, happened that sort of laid me low. Um, Okay, so um, that all being said, Let's go ahead and get to the fun stuff. And today it is Chapter 7 from Goddess Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology. Theology with an A, -A T-H-E-A-L-O-G-Y. That's not a typo. Um, And uh, Liberation Theology. That just means that um, Sacred Feminine... um, values, uh, sacred feminine ideas, mythology, um, ideology, uh, that it sets us free. Yeah, liberation theology sets us free. So, Liberation of Surrender, Chapter 7. Yeah, we're more than halfway through the book. So, here we go. What images come to mind when you hear the word surrender? For me, I doubt I thought much about it beyond seeing an old television show where one side raises the white flag because they've been defeated. Surrender was not a concept I thought much about. Neither was my need for control. Instead, like so many others in denial about their illusion of control or with a penchant for perfectionism, I believed I staved off chaos with organization, attention to detail, and lists. These tools help, of course, and lists made me feel safe. I have daily lists, weekly lists, monthly and annual lists. Nothing makes me feel better than an entire list with big, fat red lines through all the things that have been completed. And throwing a list away with everything finally complete on it, well, now that's almost orgasmic. But sometimes the best planning does not guarantee an outcome, matches our perception of perfection or success. It took a metaphoric two-by-four, bopping me between the eyes a few times before I caught on. I call those a clue-by-four now. So let me explain. 
Thoughts of surrender were the farthest thing from my mind as I departed for Ireland to be ordained as clergy and to meet Lady Olivia Robertson, one of the founders of the International Fellowship of Isis at Clonical Castle. Before leaving home, I had meticulously taken care of all the preparations, not just for my sacred journey, but for a group pilgrimage I was arranging for others, traveling to Egypt in a few months. This was years ago. Months and months of hard work went into that pilgrimage. Imagine the number of lists that involved. But while in Ireland, I heard the BBC telecast about the tourists in Egypt that had been gunned down. I knew cancellations would begin to flood in. Demoralized and disappointed, I sat at the breakfast table of my B&B just outside Clonical Castle, head in hands, and I'm not ashamed to admit, I just sat there and cried. How could so much hard work and such good intentions, helping people make a sacred journey, be threatened in such a way? Not just for me, but for those pilgrims. Then, like a fairy from the emerald meadows outside my window, Breedy, the proprietress, sat down next to me and began to talk. In a soothing voice, she gently talked and talked. She shared how business had been bad that year for our family and things looked really bleak. She revealed she was really scared and heartbroken, but she had faith things were going to turn around. She told me she just kept trying and wouldn't give up. Breedy's generosity of spirit, compassion, and kindness touched me on many levels, and my angst began to diminish a bit. Before too long, I gathered myself, made some calls to the States to keep the threads from unraveling on my group going to Egypt, and went on to Clonical Castle for my ordination ceremony. I will remember that day as long as I live. To thank my angst, in my angst, I almost did not go. By the time I returned home from Ireland, things had settled down in Egypt and in the media. The group of pilgrims I sent to Egypt was very different than I'd originally visioned, but they had a memorable journey. Disaster averted, I soon forgot about Breedy's wise words in Ireland. Time passed, and as one might expect, life continued to deal out all sorts of challenges. Disillusionment and disappointment threatened to drive me from this path of goddess spirituality altogether. Under a rock or the shadows seemed a much more comfortable place to be. But just as Breedy had appeared during dark times in Ireland, help came in the guise of the lion-headed Egyptian goddess Sekhmet, whose essence and archetype brought lessons for passion, tenacity, and strength. Not right away, but in time, I began to realize the obstacles being presented to me were in fact important detours and guideposts, forcing me down new paths I might not have imagined were my life's journey. People who made me crazy were simply pawns of the universe providing the opportunity for lessons that needed to be learned in this life. Still, with all life's distractions, with the struggle and angst averted, when we were feeling happy and fulfilled, we sometimes forget those lessons that things are often really beyond our control, that we cannot always see the good reasons behind pain and frustration, and that outcomes are often not in our hands. We learn, that wisdom, we learn that wisdom teaches us we are measured by how we respond to the challenges we face. How do we treat people? Do we appreciate what we have? Are we grateful for those that make our lives easier and happier? Do we see the glass as half full? Are we reactive or proactive? Fast forward. I received an email out of the blue. My publisher was gifting me with 650 pounds of new books which needed to be accepted, signed for, unloaded, and stored. So what did I do? I began making my lists, of course. I made arrangements for labor to move the 22 cases of books and for UPS to deliver on a certain day. I even discovered the shipping labels on all 22 cases were wrong and fortunately caught the mistake before a misdelivery. Surely now all I needed to do was clear some storage space and sit back and wait for the shipment. But guess what? 
Despite all the careful planning, I came home from a weekend trip to find those 22 cases of books had been delivered two days early and had been sitting unsecured in the hallway of my apartment building. But alas, it was all good. Not a case was tampered with. Phew, that was a relief. But this wasn't over. I took a deep breath and tore into the closest case to look at a long-awaited copy of my new book, Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth. Within a few minutes, I felt that all-too-familiar snake-like creep of panic and anxiety inching up my spine. Not only were there blank pages in the book, but after all the extra time double-checking, triple-checking, list-making, and email exchanges with the publisher, the final edits didn't make it into this printing. Damn, imagine the embarrassment and frustration. But then, much more quickly than ever before, not in days or months, but within minutes, the upset began to dissipate and remembering kicked in. It was as if a light came on in my mind. The lessons of Ireland and Breedy, of Sekhmet's lessons of tenacity, of the book delivery, of other times of dark clouds with silver linings, it all came rushing back to me in a wave, and I actually began to laugh out loud. Like a lightning bolt, I heard a voice in my head say, You cannot control everything. You can only do the best that you can do. Then you have to surrender to what is to come. Have you not learned this lesson yet, Karen? Have you not truly benefited from life's curveballs? You must put away fear of criticism, fear of failure, fear of imperfection. I don't ask that you be the smartest or the best. I only ask that you do your best and allow this faith to make you fearless. So what did I do? Well, what any woman does, of course, I called one of my sisters about the revelation. I started telling Laura about Breedy in Ireland, Sekhmet, the 22 cases of books, and about the botched printing of what turned out to be just a few copies of that book. Out of 22 cases, only a few copies were were messed up. We laughed together at this concept of learning the liberation of surrender. I realized it's learning to trust in the wisdom of the universe or goddess. Then Laura shared the email from her messenger circle that arrived that very morning. It said, On this day of your life, dear friend, I believe God, goddess, wants you to know that perfectionism is the enemy of creation. Nothing stops the forward march of any creative endeavor like the need to do it absolutely perfectly. And who is to judge what is perfect anyway? What I have judged full of flaws, so many others have called terrific. Maybe the definition of perfection is something that actually gets done. I felt like another validating voice from heaven, like that was another validating voice from heaven, and laughingly we swore to make perfectionism is the enemy of creation our mantra and tape it to our computer desks. We actually contemplated bumper stickers. But in hindsight, I feel what was also important besides our personal epiphanies was that I had to lay my soul bare, risk myself underbelly, and share this with everyone because we all have so much we can do, and there's so little time. So many of us have much we want to share, no matter our calling, but something hinders us and holds us back. Doubt breeds procrastination or inaction. We are afraid of not doing it perfectly or that others can do it better or we are waiting for someone else to step up. I'm suggesting you must be fearless and just do it. Not one of us can afford to hide our light under a bushel because of the fear of success or failure. We cannot be paralyzed by things that may happen beyond our control or feel our imperfections or fear our imperfections or the criticism people might lay at our doorstep. Just know what they will 
that they will criticize and follow your passion or inner voice anyway. We just must do our best. We must strive to liberate ourselves and surrender to the certainty we are playing our part in this macrocosm. We must honor and trust in the wisdom of the universe to provide exactly what is what it is we need. We must remember we are each powerful players in the dance of creation, and in these moments of angst, there is a gift. We just have to look for it. So, I'm sharing my hard-learned lessons from all of you. Learn to be proactive and look for the gifts in life's challenges. See Goddess when she shines her light down a different path. Appreciate life and don't let fear create your reality. Just go out into the world and be the best you can be. Go out into the world and just do. Yeah. You know, I think that's um, kind of relevant. Um, You know, I think it's always relevant, but maybe it's even uniquely relevant for what we are all going through right now. Yeah, I think so. So, um, you know what? I'm going to shift gears here. And um, I said I might do the meditation uh, to the tree, uh, meditation to, uh, you know, prune your divine tree, uh, which was a meditation to the tree goddess. But I don't know. I feel like I am being called instead to do the meditation uh, Ma'at's Feather of Truth instead. You know, maybe it's because we hear so much in the news today about truth and hoax and uh, and all the rest. So, yeah, I'm going to, you know, give myself permission to shift gears. So please, um, get comfortable. And remember when um, I'm finished the meditation, uh, I have this uh, important article I think you're going to want to uh, hear some snippets from. So, um, you know, plan to be around for uh, maybe another half hour uh, at the most. And then, uh, you know, then we'll uh, say goodbye till next Wednesday. Uh, Because next Wednesday I have uh, a great guest that's going to be with me. And uh, her name is Cindy Rassicott. And... um, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, her book that she's writing called Finding Venerable Mother, A Daughter's Spiritual Quest to Thailand. Yeah, she has an interesting story uh, that we'll talk about next Wednesday. Um, okay, so um, hopefully you have uh, used those uh, few minutes <clears throat> to get comfortable. And uh, so please uh, relax. Uh, shake off any outside stress, concerns, and fears. Do your best anyway. Um, you know they'll all still be there, <laughs> uh, but for now, give you this, give yourself this space. Uh, breathe in and out. Breathe in and out. Allow yourself to see the suggestions from this meditation on the movie screen of your third eye. Do that several times. Breathe in to the count of five and out to the count of five. Again, do this several times. Allow yourself to feel grounded and connected. Center yourself with your breath in and out. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Imagine yourself lying down in a cool green meadow. Looking up, you see the bright sunshine, and you feel the warmth of its rays on your skin. You can hear the sound of running water from a cool and clear stream only feet before you. You feel you can relax, so you close your eyes as you soak in the essence and beauty of this place that you somehow know is very special, perhaps even sacred. 
Then there's a gentle touch on your arm, and you open your eyes to see your loved one is there with you. Your loved one beckons you to follow, so you get up and walk toward a grove of trees in the distance. You see a smile on your beloved's face, and you know instantly how much you are loved. You both continue walking, and soon you are immersed within the sacred grove. You smell the freshness in the air. You take in the scent of the trees that remind you of days spent in nature's embrace. Then suddenly, before you both, you see a tumble of fallen pillars from a temple of days past. You follow your beloved as you both are being called to sit before a large, ancient stone altar. As you sit, you focus on your surroundings. You see the temple was once a beautiful place, and it still exudes an aura of potency. You hear the birds singing and see the rabbits frolicking among the long green grass that has grown up among the stones. A delicious scent seems to fill the air, and you feel just a little bit intoxicated from the sweetness. It makes you want to close your eyes, relax, and breathe in this once sacred place. You bask in the delicate sensations this place conjures within you. You feel just a bit sleepy, and with your eyes half shut, then all of a sudden you notice a mist collecting around one of the altar stones, the ancient inscription glowing. You look over at your beloved, who you can tell sees it too, You're both mesmerized as you see the inscription becoming larger, clearer, and more defined. You see the form of a woman holding a feather begin to take shape, shifting into a life-sized woman before you. She has a kind face, and she smiles at you. Notice her straight black hair and the white feather she holds in her hands. As you are looking upon this wondrous, magical vision, you notice in the background that the temple is no longer a jumble of fallen stones. It is now the magnificent place it once was and still is for you and your beloved in this moment. You are standing on a marble floor You feel the cold beneath your bare feet. You notice the sparkling gems and the crown upon this woman's head and the flowing robes that clothe her body. She gestures to you to walk up the marble steps that will take you closer, and you willingly obey. Standing before her, you hear her begin to speak. You are my child, my creation, whom I love with all my heart. Know that you may come to me any time to unburden yourself, to avail yourself of my feathers of truth, so you might set yourself free. Your eyes meet, and you feel the sincerity in these words. You feel a warmth and a relief engulf your body. Ma'at continues, You must be brave to carry my feather of truth. This is your time to transform and move into the next phase of, of life, to embrace new truths and let go of old ideas. This is that time for you to lay down the past. Allow, allow, allow yourself to become who you were meant to be. Throw off the shackles that bind your rebirth. The lady gestures for you to kneel before her, and she anoints you with the white feather she holds in her hand, saying these healing words. Let what no longer serves you take flight Lighten your mind and unburden yourself. 
allow yourself to heal. Purify your mind from thoughts and deeds which hold no truth or life. You are being called to let go of those things that once shaped you, but they are no longer needed. Trust in me, my child. I am the great creatrix who blessed your mother's womb. You are perfect, and I love you unconditionally. Know that you may return to me here any time you are troubled. I am within you and within all living things. As Maat's voice trails off, you notice that the mist that formed her body begins to fade. You stand there in awe until the last molecules of her form have disappeared. Were you dreaming? Could this have actually happened? You turn around and look at the face of your beloved and touch the tears you see gently gathered. You know your beloved knows this lady, and now you do too. You take the hand of your beloved, and you both silently walk down the marble steps. You can hardly believe what has just transpired. As you look back over your shoulder, you see the ancient columns are once again in a jumble. The birds are flying overhead, and the rabbits are playing among the tall green grass. You walk back through the sacred grove of trees to the spot alongside the stream where this journey began. You feel renewed. You feel loved. You feel protected. You know you are never alone. When you're ready, allow yourself to open your eyes and return to our circle we have created here from where you started your journey. Allow yourself to continue to feel the emotions that came up for you in the meditation. They are part of who you are. Rub your hands together. Wiggle your toes. Smile at the person next to you if you're with a friend. Awaken from your journey, but retain the message for the days and weeks ahead. So, um, I've mentioned before, uh, some of these meditations from Goddess Calling uh, are actually on YouTube. Uh, You can have them there at your disposal to play uh, whenever you like, whenever you need. Um, Or, uh, if you want to get the book, Goddess Calling, you can... Uh, record the meditations and um, use them for yourself or uh, maybe you lead a group and, um, you know, sometimes you need some outside inspiration or you haven't had time to write your own meditation or uh, or message and uh, you can always uh, use the book as a primary source or, or even as a backup and uh, you're welcome to do that. So uh, before I go, Um, I wanted to share an article that I stumbled across, and um, it just felt so relevant. And um, I felt like this author, his name is Umer uh, Haq, I think, or Haq, H-A-Q-U-E. He, I felt, was saying something that I have not heard anyone else say or write about. Now, you know, of course, I'm not everywhere reading everything. You know, maybe a lot of people are saying this. But, um, you know, I stumbled across this, and I want to share it with you. And um, uh, you can look him up, Umair Haik, uh, U-M-A-I-R-H-A-Q-U-E. I think he might be Pakistani, but um, I believe in researching him, he's considered... Uh, some of the, uh, I think one of the top 50 thinkers in the world. And I felt like what he was writing in here, I've been saying and feeling, and I don't know, I guess in a way he, uh, this resonated with me so much because he was validating what what I've been thinking. So anyway, I want to share this with you, and maybe uh, it will 
um, resonate with you as well. The article is called How Life Under Predatory Capitalism Traumatized a Nation, Our Nation. And the subtitle is Why Americans Are More Stressed Out Than Even Venezuelans or Why Happiness and Capitalism Are Incompatible. Okay, so look, this isn't a, you know, this isn't a heavy-duty read about economics. Don't let your eyes glaze over. It's easy to understand. It's not, you know, an economics lesson. So anyway, uh, he goes on to say this. Here's a fact that might shock and alarm you. People in Venezuela and Iraq feel less stressed than Americans. Venezuela, you know, the poster child of social collapse and war-torn Iraq. How can Venezuelans and Iraqis be less stressed than Americans? What the, what the F? Just think about that for a second. I recently took a look at Gallup's World Emotional Temperature Thermometer. It's a survey about how people feel all over the world. Feel, not just how much they're making, um, how you know Instagramming, tweeting, etc. But what their lives really feel like. Gallup didn't quite see it, or maybe didn't want to talk about it. But the facts say, surprise, surprise, America's the most stressed out, angriest, and worried country in the rich world. But a very long way, by a very long way. It's more stress than than many middle-income countries, and even poor ones like El Salvador, Panama, and Guatemala. How much so? More than a majority of Americans say they've more than a majority of Americans say they've felt stress lately. That compares to 30 to 35 percent for European countries, Spain, France, Italy, and even less so for people in the Scandinavian countries. Guess who was the most stressed out, worried, and angry? Young people and poor people, and most young people, my friends, or poor people. 70% of them or so felt stressed. Now, this was written in April of last year before the pandemic. So I would say everything he says is now even on steroids. If we were stressed out, worried, and angry a year ago, okay, um, now it's worse. Okay, but to get on to the article. But we shouldn't rely on isolated statistics and self-reported ones to tell us American life is in a singularly, weirdly, uniquely bad place, a place that feels like paralytic, crippling helplessness, hopelessness, and powerlessness. Nor do we have to debate whether Americans are really more stressed than Venezuelans. That's missing the point. The evidence is everywhere, and it's far more voluminous. voluminous. It's a big volume uh, than a single survey. There's the skyrocketing suicide rate. There's plummeting happiness. There's a collapsing trust. There's a loss of meaning and purpose. There's a culture of bitter cynicism. There's the expectation the future will only get worse. There are depression and anxiety surging like a tsunami. American life fell apart, my friends. No other rich company, country feels like this, feels so bad inside, feels so anxious, depressed, stressed, defeated, nor do many middle income or poor ones. The, least, the world's least stressed out place, in fact, aren't rich countries. They're Latin American countries, places with strong communities, enduring social bonds, shared values of decency and humanity that prevail. Yet, if anything, self-reports are vastly understating just how bad Americans feel. 55% of Americans might say they're stressed out, but a fuller picture of society taking suicide, depression, anxiety, rage, and grief suggests to me a grimmer truth. Americans are traumatized in mass. They are traumatized repeatedly every day and traumatized badly just by the hard work of surviving another day. And the forces traumatizing them weirdly are their institutions, their norms, and their expectations. America is, in other words, the world's first institutionally traumatized country. So what I mean by America, American life fell apart, is something precise and unique, something like this. Americans are traumatized, but they don't even know it. I mean it this way. 
it feels singularly bad to be an American these days. It's a life made of fear, worry, discomfort, despair, and grief, like nowhere else in the world, except maybe other failing states. To be American now means a life that feels bad, not good, to be traumatized and have nobody care or even notice, but encourage, cheer on, and applaud just that process of traumatization. I think Americans face a psychological trilemma between every human being's three deepest primal fear, the fear of being abandoned, the fear of being annihilated, and the fear of being overwhelmed. Their institutions make them choose between these three fears over and over and over again, but they can never not choose a life free of any of those fears. And anyone that has to face the day-to-day, night after night, will end up badly traumatized, unable to cope, needing to self-medicate, and barely functioning. And that's if they're strong. I'll come to that shortly. Take the example of active shooter drills. A sane country would have banned guns, or at least limited them. America instead made its kids literally pretend die at school over and over again. But the textbook definition of trauma is repeated exposure to one's own death or that of loved ones. American kids are literally being traumatized just by going to school where they have to pretend to die and no one much seems to care. But what the F? But do you see what I mean? I mean a little bit by institutional trauma. American institutions are traumatizing the littlest, most vulnerable Americans, not by mistake, but by design, and nobody much cares. Why is that? Take another example, one that's famous the world over. There are many Americans who choose not to have chemotherapy, a life-saving operation, some some life-saving therapy. Why? so that their families can keep their homes and not face bankruptcy. They choose to die so that their families can live. What the F? But that's the textbook definition of trauma, exposure to one's own death or that of a loved one, all over again in an even more severe way. And many Americans worry about worry about just such a fate befalling them, which is trauma too. Do you see what I mean? Americans are institutionally traumatized. They're traumatized just by existing, just by being there, just by struggling to live another day. But literally nobody seems to have noticed or to care, and I mean nobody. That also suggests that American psychology has failed and failed badly. After all, a nation doesn't traumatize itself if its psychologies are working. American psychology, with its incessant focus on self-treatment, positivity, and a forced cheerfulness, at once minimizes the trauma of simply being American, surviving another day, while stigmatizing it, while erasing it. It's a great and grave failure, my friends. Americans aren't allowed to say, Jesus, just existing is making me severely stressed. I can't cope. It shouldn't be like this. Instead, they have to go on smiling and pretend, mostly that everything's okay, recite that positivity mantra, or else they'll be seen as weak, inferior, and frail, and therefore undesirable and unwanted. Take another example still, just going to work. In America, your boss can shout at you, demean you, insult you, not to mention overwork you, underpay you, and never give you a pension or benefits, or a sense that you count in ways that are literally impossible to even imagine in other countries. If your boss shouted at you or insulted you or raged at you the way that American culture lionizes and celebrates, almost anywhere else, from France to Chile, it would be over so many, many lines that they're hard to count. It would be considered unethical, immoral, shocking, disgraceful, and abusive. They'd probably be fired and shunned. Yes, really. How many abuse scandals do you see anywhere else? And yet Americans don't seem to know it, to really understand it, because nobody tells them, and so they mostly think that this is normal, okay, acceptable. But it's not. Working isn't something that feels so incredibly pointless, futile, bad, and terrible in most other places. It can be a drudge, a drag, sure, but work isn't the kind of profoundly, chronically, systematically abusive institution it is in America. 
I could go on endlessly with examples. School and work are just two. I could tell you about my little cousin who was badly traumatized by going to an Ivy League university, just existing, or my friend who was traumatized by starting up a Silicon Valley business because she's not a tech bro. But let's dig beneath all the examples. The point is simple. American life is uniquely traumatic in the sense that just existing is an exercise in being traumatized over and over again, institutionally. And that happens, really, nowhere else in the world, save maybe war-torn, failed states, certainly nowhere else in the rich world. But I want to ask two deeper questions. First, how does a country end up being institutionally traumatized? Traumatized by the very arrangements, school, work, health care, that are supposed to protect, nourish, and uplift people. And second, what does it really mean to be institutionally traumatized in a precise and exact way? The answer to the first question, why are Americans institutionally traumatized, is that they are forced to live at the perpetual edge of ruin. They are kept in a state of forced precarity. No matter how nominally rich they get, they never have enough to make ends meet. That is because while the price of basics skyrocket every year, health care, education, decent food, rent, and so on, incomes don't ever rise. The American is something truly unique, weird, novel. He is kept artificially poor in a rich country, artificially broke in a wealthy one, and artificially powerless in a powerful one. Why? What produces these weird contradictions? The answer is as obvious as the problem. Capitalism does. America is the world's most capitalist country by a very, very long way. 75% of its economy is capitalist compared to just 50% in Europe. Capitalism has been given free reign in America to do whatever it wants. And it turns out that what capitalism wants is just as thinkers have long suggested is to prey on people. The more powerless they are, the poorer they are, the more vulnerable they are, the more they get preyed on. So um, he goes on, um, and, um, you know, he says that, um, uh, let's see, uh, remember, by capitalism, I mean the real thing. Uh, your local baker, brewer, butcher aren't capitalists any more than Stalinist communism was European social democracy. Capitalism is Wall Street, Goldman Sachs. Facebook, hedge funds, looting pensions, private equity funds, deliberately bankrupting great and historic companies, share price targets set for no reason other than profit, and your local brewer isn't doing any of that. So there's a huge, huge difference between decent, sane, ethical business enterprise, trade and endeavor, and predatory capitalism. But Americans seem not to ever been told that. Think about how each of my three examples of trauma is also an example of capitalism turning predatory, going extreme, people being kept poor, denying basic things, whether health care, education, money, safety, or inherent worth, just so that profits can keep going. In the health care example, a person's denied health care or basic medicine. Why? To jack up corporate profits and meet share price targets. In the school example, a kid is made to do an active shooter drill. Why? To keep share prices growing. Heaven forbid we take on the gun lobby. In my work example, people are serially abused. Why? Because whatever the boss says goes, and the boss is the capitalist. Um, you know, he goes on and on here, and unfortunately, I am starting to run out of time. Uh, but if you uh, want to hear more of this, you can write me, and I will forward you a copy. Um, or you can look for it yourself. I think if you just Google how life under predatory capitalism traumatized a nation, you will find it. But I think this is a really important point that we have to think about uh, because we are normalizing all of this and, it, it's, and it's destroying us. 
So that's about all I can say for today. Uh, maybe I will finish the article uh, next show. Uh, so tune in. Uh, there is more. Uh, but think about it. I think if you've been living in America, uh, like so many of you have, like I have, uh, you get this. Uh, maybe you don't even need to hear the rest of the article. Um, so, yes, capitalism is killing us. The 1% is killing us. And we desperately need a new system. And uh, you know what? Uh, the closest thing we got is uh, uh, the progressives and the Democratic Party and Democratic Socialism that uh, Bernie Sanders has been talking about uh, so that there is equality and not this predator capitalism killing us all. All right. Well, um, I only have 15 seconds left here before I get cut off. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I would love to hear from you. Karen Tate, 108 at yahoo.com. Bye for now, and I'll see you next Wednesday. <laughs>